you can love Chris Heron and tell the truth about him. You can love Marcus Dupree and tell the truth about him. You can love Louis Tion and tell the truth about him. There's no barrier to truth. Welcome to Beyond the Lens, presented by Diesel Films. I am Seth Shapiro. And I'm AJ Speaks. Born into an entertainment family in Queens, New York, Jonathan Hawk was destined for a career in sports and film. For over 10 years, Hawk cut his teeth under the tutelage of the legend Steve Sable at NFL Films, leading him back to Brooklyn where he started his own production company. Hawk has gone on to direct the most 30 for 30s and has arguably the finest sports documentary CV of all time. Hawk details the flip side of the U.S. men's hockey team's shocking victory in the 1980 Winter Olympics and the devastating impact that game had on the Russian coaches and players in his highly acclaimed documentary of Miracles and Men. He also explains why it was imperative to frame the Felipe Lopez story through the lens of immigration and not disappointment in the wonderful 30 for 30 called The Dominican Dream. I think you enjoy both discussions and much more on this episode of Beyond the Lens presented by Diesel Films. No intro needed here. This man has redefined the sports documentary space. We welcome Jonathan Hawk to Beyond the Lens. Jonathan, it's an honor. Oh, thanks. My pleasure, Seth. Great to be with you. Looking forward to it, Jonathan. Looking forward to talking to you about all your vast array of documentaries that you've worked on. <laughs> well, thanks, AJ. It's, uh, you know, live long enough, get old enough. <laughs> suddenly you have a body of work. You want to say, how did that happen? Jonathan, we'd like to break the podcast into three acts, with the first act being your story. Where did you grow up and where did your love of sports and storytelling intersect? Well, I, uh, I was born in Queens, New York City, and my family moved out to Long Island, where I grew up and went to high school. My dad was... Uh, it worked at Paramount Pictures when I was a little kid as uh, uh, in the advertising and marketing. So we had a little screening room in the basement, 16 millimeter projector and a, and a screen. It was extremely low-fi, but uh, nothing like home theaters today. But he would show us films in the basement. And my mom was a total film buff, probably knew more than my dad. And so we were always talking about movies. And the other thing we were always talking about was sports. And I was a Yankee fan with my dad from the Bronx and um, a Knicks fan. You know, I was, I, I, was, I was eight years old and went, went to a finals game at the Garden and, and just got it in my blood. And so I wanted to do something in sports and movies. And the only place that you wanted to be in those categories in the 80s when I started was NFL Films. So that's, uh, wrote Steve Sable a letter and um, was very lucky to get one back and ended up, uh, ended up working there and, and having him mentor me and, and teach me how to, how to make films that people, people care about. And that, that, that's, that's how it happened. So you, you answered part of my next question, which was the teacher or person of influence that helped you. I'm going to guess that's Steve Sable. And then can you walk us through how he was able to help you so much? AJ, the thing about Steve Sable is that he loved what he was doing so much. And he, not just the filmmaking of it, but the subject, he loved football so much. And the things that you hated about the NFL, the, the lack of diversity in coaching, well, certainly we didn't know about concussions and their their impact back then, but the we certainly knew about the injuries and how these players were, you know, 
often crippled and disabled as as older men and there there were things about the game that we knew and we recognized and but he he wouldn't turn a blind eye to those things but he would not allow it 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 didn't change how much he loved the game and what the the game of football the sport of football uh, even though he was working for the National Football League, it was really about football. And to make films that are unafraid to love your subject as a director was the greatest lesson he taught us. And, uh, you know, you you discover when you love something, you discover a truth about that thing or even a person that no one else can discover you can't discover it by analysis you can discover it by love and that was the part of the thing he wanted to focus on as a filmmaker and and that's the part of every film that i still focus on to this day even though we can't be as kind of flowery and 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 naked in our love of the game as as we would have been in the 80s and 90s when i was at nfl films with steve you can still you can love Chris Heron and tell the truth about him. You can love Marcus Dupree and tell the truth about him. You can love Louis Tion and tell the truth about him. There's no barrier to truth in love. And that's, that's the guiding principle of what he did and, and what I try to do in sort of in his honor, really. Steve Sable was definitely a hero of mine growing up. What was your most personal moment with Steve? Wow. Um, my most personal moment for Steve was when I visited him in his home years after I had stopped working for him. Um, must have been 2011. And, um, <clears throat> you know, his dad uh, and I stopped working there in 95. So it was 16, 16 years after I had worked there, but we had stayed in touch and seen each other. Um, and w- when when Steve got sick, he was going to the NFL Hall of Fame because his father was being inducted and he was introducing his father. And um, he invited me to go with him, not with him, but to go with the group of NFL films employees to go be with them. You know, there was probably, I don't know, 50 people who went, but but he, he got in touch with me to invite me to go. And it was the same day as Chris Heron's younger son was turning three years old, which was the final shoot of the film Unguarded that I'd been working on. And it was a hugely important shoot. And I called him and he said, no, the shoot always takes priority. You can't come to this. And he's dying. Right. And, and he said to me, um, you know, the, the knowing that I had a shoot that he would be so much happier knowing that I was at the shoot than, out in Camden, uh, Canton. And, um, and I started crying, you know, on the phone with him. And, and, uh, um, and then I visited him the next week after he was back. And I didn't know he, I think he had, he only lived another three weeks after that. But, um, I, uh, that was really the, uh, the moment that, that I remember most in terms of personal, uh, there are plenty of work moments, but, but that's what I'll always, take with me, carry with me. Thank you for sharing that. And there's so much to unpack with your relationship there, but I want to go to the moment you said in 1995 when you left, how challenging was it to leave someone that's mentoring you, that's 
teaching you all of these things? And then where did you go? Where, where, where did you go and how, how did you go about that process? That's a great question, AJ, to really, these are the moments in your life where you determine the path you're going to take, even though you have no idea where you're, where you're going with it. And I guess I was 30 years old. And to just backtrack a bit, right after I got out of college in 1985, um, NFL Films wasn't hiring, and I got a job at NBA Entertainment, which was a brand new little thing. I mean, I was, I think, the the ninth or tenth employee, and now they're, you know, hundreds and hundreds. But Barry Winnick was the sort of guru of the business. He had been a pioneer in sports films in the 60s. And he was the the main camera person and sort of the only person at, at NBA Entertainment that had any experience. He knew all the guys at NFL Films. And when I when they offered me the job, he said to me, be careful, you don't get stuck there because it's the most comfortable place in the world to work. But you know, I was 22 at the time, and and he said, You don't want to stay forever because you're going to look back and say, oh, wow, there are other things I could have done. And um, I remembered that. And he said, I should only stay three years. I stayed like 10 years. But Steve, uh, Steve had spoken to me about, you know, future plans for the company and my role. And I decided, you know what, if I stay now and, and take him up on these new roles, um, I am going to stay forever. And there's got to be more to the world than than football as much as I, I love it. And and it's still the best job I ever had. But I'm very happy I did leave. And I moved back to New York, which was my home. And I had also recently met a girl that I ended up marrying. And, and I'm very glad about that, too. And that was a, that was a real push. But I didn't um, I, I didn't have a job. I just went home to New York, got an apartment in Brooklyn, and I started doing um, film workshops with at-risk youth in the city. I had met somebody who did had an after-school program, uh, an art program for at-risk youth was the term we used then. I'm not sure if that's still a term of art, but kids who had been in some degree of trouble, but were not currently incarcerated or, or in a... a you know, a group home or anything like that. So they, um, they set up, I set up a film workshop there and started, I would work with kids, 15, 16 year old kids, making short films with them, helping them make short films about themselves as a means of uh, self-esteem building and, and self-expression. And uh, actually one of the kids from my very first group, Alistair Christopher was so talented with the camera he ended up becoming my DP many years later, and he's shot every everything I've done since Through the Fire back in 2005. And and Lavar Daisy, who uh, was another amazing, wonderful young man in that group, he works with me as an associate producer to this day. So that was what I did for a few years, and then after a little bit of time, I I got the hankering to start start making my own films again, and. Um, was asked to do the World Series film for the Yankees or for Major League Baseball in 1998 when they had they played the Padres. Their contract with 
Phoenix Communications, who had been MLB Productions. They just their contract ended, and they decided to take everything in house. But their contract ended in September, and they realized they had a World Series film they had to do. So, <laughs> so they called me, and it got me back in into it. And yeah, I haven't stopped since. AJ and I loved the An One mixtape tour. That was something that we watched religiously <laughs> as as we grew up. How did you get involved with that, and how did you? become the production company that produced the and one mixtape tour. So there were the mixtapes that were made and and one marketed them. But then Mike Antonoro, who was one of the heads of content at ESPN at the time, he had worked at hoopstv.com, which was one of the earliest streamers of, of content. And before any, you know, everyone had dial up and you, you know, nobody could, could really stream anything, but they were doing it. And he, I think that was partly owned by Seth Berger and the N1 guys, hoopstv.com. I may be wrong about that, but I think that was the case. Anyway, he, he developed a good relationship with them. And he, he called me and said, I want to do a series about the M1 mixtape tour. I said, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. You know, it's, uh, what are we going to do? It's just, we should really like, get involved in their lives and, you know, do like a real socio-political thing about, you know, being a streetball guy and not making the NBA and what that means. And he's like, no, I want to do a show about this tour. It's going to be incredible. Said, All right. And the first date was in Detroit and it was so awesome. And the energy was so incredible. And it was like, you know, sometimes like you watch like the first couple of mixtapes and they're almost all, you know, except for the skip to my loose stuff from, from Rucker and some Alimo stuff from, from the all city game. They're mostly from Linden, New Jersey, where a main event mm -hmm. and Shane set up that first big game for the tape. And when you watch a highlight tape, usually like, then you go to the live event and it's so disappointing because it, the highlights are selected and everything else is just sort of normal. It's like why the Japanese fans started booing during the first huddle when the first pro uh, NFL game was played in Japan because they had only watched NFL films. They didn't know there were huddles between plays and they thought <laughs> the players were stalling or something. So, but this event in Detroit was wire to wire thrill a minute. It was incredible. And those guys on that team, that te first mm -hmm. mixtape team, teams, were so charismatic, so extraordinary at what they did that they could walk the ball up the court, and it was thrilling to watch <laughs> just the style. But then, then they'd go into action. The Hawks had a couple of and one moments. My son and I were laughing watching the other night when after Trey Young threw it off the glass and then when Gallinari spun PJ Tucker around. Yeah. We were like, he's gotta go. He's gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> they should have rushed the court. It was unbelievable. But yeah. Get on the bus. That's, that's how I got involved. And that was great. I think we ran seven seasons and and we had a great time. And then you know, we had to come up with the concept of the competition and guys getting voted on and voted off and that made it different but mm -hmm. and uh, you know i don't i don't usually like shows that do that i think they 
try to humiliate people and things like that. But this was, uh, this was a lot of fun. And then that's how the professor and helicopter and air up there and all these guys got their name, you know, coming off the open run in the parking lot and getting invited into the arena. And it was really exciting. I mean, every, every aspect of that really was exciting. You took me back, man, like watching those films and going to Rucker and going to all those places to watch the play. It was like so much fun and just such a tap back into my childhood. Now, you 2005, you came out with Through the Fire, and that felt like a lot like what you were doing with And One Mixed Tour, but you decided to focus on Sebastian. Walk us through that process, and you got to tell me. I felt like I watched it again last night just to prepare for this oh, conversation. Wow. I felt like you shot, you must have shot hours, I mean, months of footage with Sebastian. Walk us through that we, process. We did. And, and Alistair Christopher, who I mentioned before from the at-risk youth group, yeah, he basically, you know, he's from Brooklyn. He basically was there every day. And which and Coney Island's not close. So he had to go, yeah. even if he's at one part, he, that's and, not close. And he was actually living in uh, Staten Island at the time. And yeah, he would get on the ferry and, and get on the subway and get out to, but we were shooting with those days. We had the little, what were they called? Like that? Well, the PD 150, the Sony PD 150, oh, yeah, yeah. and then the Panasonic HVX 200. I think we upgraded yeah. to in the middle. I mean, this was like <laughs> dirty cameras and, but he would, he would mic people up and have, he would have two mics feeding the camera and you know, go shoot practice or whatever every day. And then I would go out and we would, you know, go home with Sebastian or, or do whatever else we were doing a few days a week. But he was, he was the one who was really out there every day. And when the, there's that sequence of the film in Greece, just to mm -hmm. shout out mm -hmm. Alistair G-Lock, as he's known, Christopher, that sequence in Greece, he did that 100% alone. Get he out of here. I was going to ask you about that. That game where Sebastian's, mic'd up in the crowd, mm -hmm. Jamel's mic'd up in the game, and the fans are going wild. He shot that whole thing himself, no sound man, no AC, Dang. no nothing, with one little HVX 200. And he's amazing. He's like yeah. really amazing guy. But uh, what, what happened with that is I got a call in 2003 in June. No, 2004 in June from the producer of the Bob Costas show on HBO. He used mm -hmm. to have a, a weekly show that he would talk sports. And also they were branching out into culture. We wanted to go beyond just sports. So the producer said, I want you to do a short film for the show. It can be about anything you want, but it's got to relate to culture in a way. And I said, well, there's this kid in Coney Island named Sebastian Telfair. And he's not the next LeBron because the, the air date of the show they wanted me to create the piece for was the same night that LeBron was going to be drafted with the first pick out of high school. So I said, well, wouldn't it be cool to do something not about LeBron, but about the guy they're going to be talking about next year. And we'll do a thing in, who is he? He's a kid out in Coney Island. He's unbelievable. And I had only known about Sebastian through the N1 mixtape tour because one of the first seasons may have been the first season 50 and AO and hot sauce went out to Coney Island for bro day. Bro day is a tournament that was held every summer out, out in Coney Island in honor of uh, 
Bro Rodriguez, who died from gunfire out in Coney Island and who was the best friend of Slice Morton, who was the brother of Tiny Morton, who was the coach of Lincoln. So Tiny's brother Slice had this tournament every summer and the N1 guys knew about it. And after their New York event, they went out to, uh, it was just coincidence that it worked out with the calendar. They went out and, and played in Bro Day. And the most amazing thing about that night was Sebastian. And he was, I think, just going into 10th grade, but he was, he had this aura and he had, he had, I mean, he had charisma off the charts. Like there's no one like Jordan, but and, and people are going to laugh at any mention of Sebastian Telfair's name in the same sentence as Jordan. But you have to trust me as somebody who's worked with both, like Michael is here, but Sebastian's charisma as a young man was like just a notch below there and way above LeBron at the time and everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you could not take your eyes off him. So I suggested to the HBO guys that we do a short piece on, on Sebastian. And so we got in touch with him and he said, well, as long as you make it about my brother with me, because my brother is my real hero. And everybody thinks that Stefan is my hero because he's my cousin, but he's not. It's, it's Jamel. Jamel Thomas. And so we said, sure. So we went out there and shot that. And I'll have a, a PS to that story in a minute. But so we spent two days shooting with Sebastian around Coney Island, not really playing any basketball, but just going around Coney Island. And, and, and that aura we had seen at Bro Day was really there and all the characters and in, in, I want to say like in the village of Coney Island, mm -hmm. it's really its own place, unlike the rest of Brooklyn. But the the hopes that they had in Sebastian were amazing. And then what happened was on the second day, it started raining and the guys just dipped and didn't invite us in. And it was raining. Right. So I was like, this is weird because everyone's getting along great and being, this is going great. So I didn't know what was going on. And then Sebastian's dad, Otis, comes in and gets in my car where we're sitting, staying dry, just waiting to know what to do. And he says, I'm very sorry we can't invite you up, but my wife, Erica, Sebastian's mom, won't allow anything to do with basketball in the home. I was like, wow, this is, this is weird because most families, you know, this was like the beginning of reality TV and you want to be on TV if you're a kid who's, who's trying to make it in, in a sport. And I said, well, why won't, why doesn't she want to have anything to do with basketball? And she said, well, he said, well, it's because of what happened with Jamel. I said, well, what happened with Jamel? Cause I didn't know the story. Mm -hmm. I, I, I knew who Jamel Thomas was, but I didn't know the story. And the story he told me was that, you know, Jamel had been, uh, he had led the big East in scoring at, uh, at Providence and he was predicted to be a top 15 pick and by the, you know, the people who would do that, the Mel Kuypers of the college basketball world back then. And he ended up not being picked at all. And he had taken his mom the night before or the day before the draft to the house that he was buying for her when he was drafted. And then he didn't get drafted. And they were heartbroken as a family and is like 
sort of metaphorically, everybody turned their head and looked over at Sebastian as the, the hope. And I said, wow, like this is the backstory. This is not just a short piece. This is a movie. So I said to Otis, can we talk a little more? Can you get the guys to come down? So we met in the stairwell, you know, the pissy stairwell in the, in the projects down by the ground floor and Sebastian and his brother, Jamel, who was very silent. He was like the strong silent type at that point in time. He did not talk. And Otis, the three of them were there. And I, I said, listen, this has gone great. I think if we keep shooting, we can have a movie. And they said, what do you mean a movie? I said, you know, like you go to the theater and you, they turn out the lights and you watch a movie, but it's you guys. <laughs> and nobody said anything. And then they both looked at Jamel and he just nodded his head. And then we started, started making the movie. Dang but the, the, the PS, the reason why Sebastian wanted it to be known that Jamel was his guy and not Stefan was because this just earlier that summer, there was an incident where Sebastian was horsing around they were on the court. I think it was actually the bro day court at 25th and surf. And they were just horsing around and Steph rolls up in his Bentley and gets out of the car and says, you guys playing like, let's go. So he and Sebastian are guarding each other and Sebastian's wearing Timberlands and, you know, it wasn't like a serious thing, but Steph was like, you know, draining long shots and started talking stuff at Bassey and Bassey started talking stuff back and going back at him, which was like Coney Island has one top dog at a time. And <laughs> it was Stefan Marbury, no question about it. But here's Bassey not backing down. And finally the game's tied and Bassey, you know, drives at Steph, steps back, hits a, a jumper and to win the game and starts barking at him. And Steph got mad and started laying into him. This is, this is why I don't give you any money. You tell fairs, think you're special. I mean, these are families that literally Jamel and Stefan slept in the same bed. They lived directly on top of each other. But between the two families, it was barely enough to keep everybody fed. They were that close. And he literally reduced Bassie to tears on the court in front of everybody. And actually, they didn't speak for a few years until Bassie was drafted. And then they sort of patched things up. But... And believe it or not, there was a guy filming the game they were playing, but he got tired and went to get a sandwich. And he missed the shot. <laughs> before <laughs> Stefan showed up. And he comes back to the court and like everyone's just upset and fighting and he missed, missed the whole thing. <laughs> and if if that had been in, if, if he had had that footage, well, he probably would have made the movie, first of all. <laughs> well, we certainly would have licensed it. But yeah, it was... Uh, and Jamel and I are still in touch. He's an incredible person. And Dan Turner, the oldest brother, who was Miss Erica's oldest child, sadly got COVID and passed away last summer. Right. And wow. three three weeks later, Bassie's mother did too. So that was pretty devastating. Dan was, uh, was 49 and uh, ran an after-school program out in Coney Island and ran a tournament with little kids and incredible loss, incredible loss for the community and a loss of a good friend for me. I have to ask you, you set up the end of the movie, setting up the younger brother as yeah. if he was going to be the next 
whatever happened with him? Well, Ethan was sort of like Bassie with like that charisma, but Ethan didn't almost didn't have to earn it like Bassie did because like Ethan was on the cover of Bounce. You guys, I don't know if you remember Bounce magazine with Bobito Garcia did. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Years ago, like Ethan was on the cover of Bounce when he was like eleven <laughs> or, or ten, and Ethan was um, like talking back to teachers in school and and. First, they sent him to Turkey where Jamel was playing to have Jamel straighten him out. And then he went out to a school, they sent him to a Catholic school, and he was talking back to the nuns and stuff. And, and it was like he was sort of mm-hmm. a, a product of a different environment, even though he still lived on 31st Street. And at some point, the switch got flipped for him, and he got really grew up and got very mature and serious. And he went to Idaho State. And he did really well. He scored over 20 points a game two years in a row and and really got his stuff together. But he didn't get drafted, and he went overseas. And after Dan passed away last summer, I haven't heard about what's been going on with Ethan. But I think Ethan is going to do well, whatever he does, because these guys in this family are so smart, and they have that likability, that charm. And, uh, you know, if they can avoid bad decisions they can do really well and i think uh, from what i heard ethan was was on that good path uh, and and i think he'll be good wherever he ends up since we're here on the topic of a follow documentary for our listeners what advice can you give them shooting a follow documentary so they don't have shooters remorse yeah just be there and don't get lunch <laughs> when they're still playing uh, <laughs> You have to be there. You know, we shot 900 hours for Through the Fire. And you, you just got to be there. Because these moments that take 15 seconds to happen that really make your film, if you're not there, you can't write about it. You're not doing a magazine article. You're, you're making a film and you have to be rolling. And when you don't know what's going to happen, you certainly have to cover. You have to be there as much as you can. And they're going to get sick of you. And they're going to hate the sight of you after a while. So you have to tread that line of being respectful of people living their lives, but you have to be there. And in order to have them allow you to be there, you have to gain their trust. And the way you gain someone's trust is always doing what you say you're going to do. You can't mislead them at any step of the way. You can't ask for an inch and take a mile you know you can't say can i have a bite of your sandwich and then eat the whole sandwich you've got to honor every single thing you say to them and when things change you have to let them know and explain to them why and they'll trust you eventually when i did off the res with shoni shimmel and her family out in in oregon trust was a huge issue for their mom who was not really too keen on trusting a white person to come in to her world and tell an honest story about Native American experience. And there were several conversations we had that were very difficult where she was done. And I had to talk my way back into it. And it was hard. It was hard. But you, if you're honest and you, you don't take advantage, people, if you're trustworthy, people will come to trust you. And, and that that's the main thing. We're going to get into act two and dive into your stellar documentary career. 
we'll probably skip around a little bit, but I want to talk about Of Miracles in Men, released in 2015, The Miracle on Ice from the Russian Perspective. Lake Placid, you have Slava Fetisov on the rink in her Brooks Arena, walking the ice. You're high above the ice with the camera. I get goosebumps when I watch it. I get goosebumps right now talking about it. Talk to me about that moment. What was that like? And then also, are there other memories or moments in your career that you've had where you've had that feeling? Yeah, I mean, the, the idea to take Slava back to, to the rink, to the scene of the crime, um, was very, very important part of that plan for that film for us. I've always felt that the emotion of a distant past moment becomes present for people when they're in the location. And it's always worth trying to get them to that location. It was something that I learned when I was doing a thing called The Season about St. John's University basketball. And we took coach Mike Jarvis, they were playing BC. So we took a little side trip before the game to Cambridge where he grew up and where he coached Patrick Ewing and everything in high school. And uh, we were on our way there and I asked him a question about his mom. He just started crying. We we're like driving in the streets of his old neighborhood. And I realized, oh, there's something here, there's something to this going to the spot. So we had done it with Marcus Dupree. We went to the, the field where he played and talking about his brother watching him in the stands, his brother who couldn't walk and he started crying. <laughs> you know, people, people just, when they're there, they get really into the moment. And so, you know, Slava, who was very proud and not really eager to admit that it was a very big deal, Great story from Slava. He was invited to like a 20th anniversary event of the game. The Americans were all going to be there. And would he come? And he said, well, okay, he'll come. And they said, do us a favor, bring your silver medal. And he said, why would I bring my silver medal? They said, no, no, it'll be cool. You know, all the Americans will have their gold medal. You'll have your silver medal. So he shows up at the uh, event and they bring him on stage and he's carrying a giant cardboard box. And he puts it down and they say, you know, Slava, what's this? What are you doing? He says, oh, I'm sorry. This is a box with my 54 gold medals. <laughs> I think the silver one's in there somewhere. You asked me to bring it. If you give me a minute, I'll try to find it. And that's Slava, right? Those moments when you can go to, to something and, and, and it becomes real in a way for the subject often when they're there. That's why we wanted to take him to the rink and it went great. The thing that is, um, talk about for your advice for people, we were driving, we met him about 30 miles outside Lake Placid and then got in the car with him to drive the last stretch. And after about 20 minutes, something happened with the camera. We were shooting with the red and this was like an early red and, and it was not built for running gun. And the file of the 20 minutes of conversation between him and his daughter was corrupted. Brutal. And I'm ready to jump out of the moving vehicle. <laughs> so I explained to Slava and his daughter what happened. And um, would he mind turning around and driving a half hour again? And he did it. And yeah. it was good. It was it, it, They talked about different things. It was, it was great. And um, yeah, boy. That's a sick feeling. Be careful in a moving vehicle. Start and stop. Make sure your files are being are being written well because uh boy, 
That's some courage right there to ask that question. <laughs> well, we'd gone through so much <laughs> to get him there. That's an, a, another thing I actually learned from Alistair when we were in Cuba with Louis Tian. We went to his boyhood home, another one of these same stories. And uh, this old neighbor comes out. And I don't know if you've, if you've seen the, the Lost Son of Havana, mm-hmm. but the, this neighbor, Fermin, comes out and he played with Louis as a kid and he thought he was going to make it and he didn't make it. So they had this really cool scene. But then the guy wouldn't leave. And we're going over to Louis's aunt's house around the corner and he's about to see his family for the first time in 46 years and this guy won't leave. And finally, Alistair goes over to him. And I don't think the guy spoke English. But Alistair was from Fort Greene and said, listen, man, we came a long way to get this. And we're not going to let you F it up. <laughs> and, and the guy backed down. And it was, I was glad he was there to do that. Because I don't know that I had it in me to do that to this guy. And I realized, yeah, you know, if you, we came a long way to do this. And with Slava and Lake Placid, like, I hate asking you this, but we came a long way. You came a long way. <laughs> we got to do this again. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't want to ask for a retake ever on a real documentary, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you got to. With the red cameras, it happens. Yeah. Hopefully not anymore. Hopefully they made it a little sturdier. Now I don't want to speak bad about the red because the image is gorgeous, but not, not, not when it's bouncing around in a car. I'll tell you what, you drop all these documentaries and you have such an extensive catalog it's all, it reminds me of like a musician or a writer who just has so many books or, or albums and you don't know all of them. So for me, going through this was cool. And you come across that one album or book and you're like, man, I didn't know about this one. And for me, it was the Dominican Dream. Oh, nice. It just resonated with me. And you started it by saying, I'm going to tell this story in a way it hasn't been told. You know, I knew the Felipe Lopez story. I was there the same four years at a biggie school when he was there. You know, so I knew the the main part of it, but why did you feel you had to tell? And for our listeners that may not have seen the doc, how did you tell that story different than the way that most people expect it to be told? Well, to me, the reason the Felipe Lopez story is worth doing a film about is uh, as an immigrant story. It wasn't as a basketball story. The idea that anybody would see Felipe Lopez's story as a disappointment or a failure when he comes to the United States without a word of English at age 13 and ends up having an MBA career and, and making a great life for himself and his family, all, all every member of his family has a great life. The fact that we look at that as a disappointment or a failure is a real thing we have twisted as a culture. And I thought that Felipe's story told as an immigrant story would sort of untwist that and, and help us, not only see immigrants for what they contribute and the hardships they have to endure in order to contribute, but just to question our, our very definitions of success. My great-grandfather and great-grandmother brought their family, which at that point was only my grandmother, and then there were three more kids who were born here, but they came here and, and settled just right around the corner from where Felipe and his family settled you know, it was 60 years later or something. So my dad grew up around the corner from where Felipe grew up. And, you know, I felt that that story, that was the way into that story. It was, 
because this Dominican immigrant family, just like my Eastern European Jewish immigrant family, and that somehow it's easy for us to celebrate my immigrant story, but it's harder for a lot of Americans to celebrate the Lopez family story. And that was what made it worth doing. And then you get to know Felipe and you realize this guy is, I mean, you talk about charisma also. I mean, that's the key to do a story, a, a film that you're asking people to like, look at a guy on screen for the better part of two hours, even Shoni Schimmel, you know, who wasn't as outgoing as Felipe or Sebastian. She had charisma too. And especially when she was playing and her mom had crazy charisma. So that's a really important part of deciding what story to tell also is, is this, is this somebody I can watch for 90 minutes or a hundred minutes and, and want to keep watching. And Felipe was that for sure. Well, I thought, I thought you buttoned that story up really well at the end when you started showing Tom Konchowski, rest his soul, and all the other people that you had speak, and they told their immigrant story, and then you dedicated to immigrants at the end. That was my aha moment. At the very end, when you made the dedication, I'm like, oh, I got it. He tied it in from the beginning all the way to the end, and you closed the book. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that we did that with everybody we shot an interview with. We had them bring a, a photograph of their family, somebody who immigrated here because everybody has that story, right? So, I mean, not everybody, but almost everybody, but but certainly even Tyreek mm-hmm. with his his family from Georgia, you know, the migration, the great migration is, is, you know, the great American immigrant story, even though it's just south to north. But originally had when our first cut of the film, every time a new character came on in an interview, they would say their first line about Felipe, and then we would pause and they would introduce themselves with their photograph of their immigrant family. And then we would resume the story. And the idea was that we'd see all along, oh, they're all immigrants. But we looked at it, it was like, oh, that we were like putting the brakes on the story every few minutes and it was not working. I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to scrap it, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I was telling my wife about it one night. She said, oh, easy, just put in the tail credits. Easy, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a terrible idea. I'll never work. Nobody watches it. It'll never work. So I mentioned it to the editor and 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 he did it and we sent it to the network and they loved it. And I had to sheepishly tell my wife that she had the right idea, which she already knew. Sometimes it's good to ask our wives for advice. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it Spe- is. Speaking of immigrants, I'm from Rhode Island. Uh, okay. So I see a theme with your movies, Lou Lamarillo, Bill Reynolds, the great Providence Journal columnist, uh-huh. uh, and then the Farrelly Brothers. Farrelly Brothers, right. How did that come about with the Farrelly Brothers approaching you to go down to Cuba with El Tiante, Louis Tiant, uh, for that film? So Chris Meyer, who is a producer who works with the Farrelly Brothers, had met Louis and invited him to dinner with the brothers, uh, Pete and Bobby. And he told a story. He was on a cruise, like a Red Sox Legends cruise, when you know people pay money to go on a boat with old yeah. men who used to play baseball. And he said they could see Cuba. And he's telling the story about how he was. He started to cry when he saw Cuba and how he wanted to go back. So the Farrellys and Chris asked him if they could film him going back and make a documentary. And he said, "Look, if you can get me into Cuba, you can do anything you want." Because Mr. Tiant was not a friend of the revolution. 
wasn't an enemy of the revolution. There's a distinction in in the Cuban uh, government. So they went to their agents because they didn't know anything about documentaries. I mean, they knew more than they realized they knew because they're storytellers, but they wanted a, a director for a documentary. And the guy at their agency had been the guy who discovered through the fire before it was even in the film festivals and repped through the fire as an independent film. He was now a big agent out in LA. And um, so Bobby Farrelly asked him, you know, we need a director who should we call? And he recommended me. And the other agents were like, well, he's not at this agency. Why are you recommending him? Recommend we got plenty of documentary filmmakers. He's like, no, I think this is the, the guy. So they gave Bobby a list of names, including me. Bobby said, well, no, there's one guy we want. Let's go get the guy. We don't have to talk to all these people. So he came to New York and came to my office with Chris Meyer. And, you know, it didn't have to convince me. That was just great stroke of luck for me. And then the interesting thing was, as we started researching, I didn't know about Louis' dad, that his father had pitched in the Negro Leagues and had these dreams and this bitterness. Again, it's like with Jamel Thomas's backstory that makes the whole story more meaningful. And Chris Meyer was the one who suggested bringing the eight millimeter camera with us to Cuba because from the pictures you see of Cuba, you know, with the old cars, you know, that old film might look great. I was like, oh, we'll just shoot the video and treat it in post. He's like, nah, it's never the same when you do it in post. All right, you're right. Let's do that. And then the, the decision that I made was, you know, Louis' dad is really sort of the co-star of this, even though he's not alive. And we got to bring him with us. So we found that picture, that amazing close-up photograph of him as an older player. And uh, I decided I was just going to show it to everybody when we interviewed them. And, and we were going to bring it to Cuba with us and show everybody we saw in Cuba. And I swear to God, every single time we showed that to a person, they cried. There was so much emotion tied up in that story that we didn't know. I mean, we, you, you have a hunch, right? You say, this, this makes me feel a certain way. This is going to be uh, impactful to people, maybe. Let's bring it and see what happens. And the night before we went, the, the old woman, Hortensia, in Miami, the old Cuban emigre saw it, and she started crying. And just it, it, it everyone, Tony Oliva's brother, the guys in the park. I mean, it, it, was, it was amazing. And, um, and that I think made a big difference in the film. And it was just, you know, a hunch we played. Good hunch. I, <laughs> I noticed the theme in a couple of your docs also, uh, confession. I'm a Duke coach K fan from the early Johnny Dawkins was my favorite player. Oh, wow. Reason, reason why I'm a Duke fan. I enjoyed watching survive in advance. I love the way you use both players from old teams to sit around the table and talk about those teams. Was that something you learned from Surviving Advance and you applied to the class that, coach, that saved Coach K? Yeah, John Dahl, who's the executive at, at ESPN, who is sort of the one who gives notes, network notes on all their projects from the last dance on down. Yeah, he asked us to do that. He said, you got to do with these guys what you did in Surviving Advance and get them all together. And, and you know, I'm not sure it's something that all, would always work. It certainly worked with the guys from, from State, and it worked with the guys from Duke too, but they hadn't seen each other in a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the important thing. Like you can't sort of manufacture it, but if you can really put it together and it's an event for them, and it was a big deal for Coach K. 
like he he's a busy man right and he doesn't have a lot of time his interviews tend to be short and very focused fortunately he's really good at understanding what you need but he uh he was supposed to come for like an hour and he stayed for four hours it was just <laughs> he was having a great time and you know it's great to see that it, it gives you a chance to connect it, i felt like we were cheating a little bit in the duke film by doing wow. that because we had done it in, oh, gotcha. in survive in advance and like we should challenge ourselves to find a different way to create that emotion but you know like you said sold on it it speaks to everybody differently so for me to see coach amaker and to see all those guys mark allery jake but to see all of them and hear their stories and just knowing it as a fan and then some of the guys that weren't as popular like to me it just worked because you're just like and then you weave the story you know you told the story about how bad they were and how coach k almost got fired like that to me made it less about hey this is like nc state and more about this is about this team and these players here at duke yeah and jay billis you know he it was his idea the film so you know the fact that he could get quinn snyder to come in you know we, i'm not sure we could have gotten all those guys to come in but jay did and uh you know look i was one of these guys who didn't like duke ever and certainly hated coach k you know, as a fan. And then when I interviewed him for Survive in Advance and he and Derek Wittenberg are looking around his office together and he's funny and personable. And I was like, oh, this guy's nothing like I thought he was. The guy's like really cool. And I felt like an idiot. Like, I can't think Coach K's cool. <laughs> I, don't, I hate Coach K. What am I going to do with myself now that I think Coach K is cool? How am I going to look in the mirror? I'm like one of these dorks that thinks Coach K is cool. And then when we shot that and we, you know, we interviewed him again and spent some time with him at the dinner. And, and uh, yeah, he's he's really cool. And it still hurts me to say, but the truth is the truth. And Jay was amazing. And all those guys, Allery and, and Johnny Dawkins and Tommy Amaker and, all those guys I hated as players, not Johnny Dawkins. I always loved Johnny Dawkins too. But, and then the weave between Valvano too, right? With Coach K, and he also mm -hmm. seemed like a cool guy, and they loved him. So I, yeah. I thought that was what was was similar. Yeah, that was. Thanks. We can see why he's built such a great program now. Well, I'll tell you what, you can. I mean, the guy is like, you know, what you see on TV is not always what you get in person. Like when you're face to face. I mean, coaches in general are much more impressive in person. You know, you watch them on TV, they can, they look fat, they look <laughs> stupid. They're next to all these amazing athletes and they're not. But in person, they do have, at a certain level, they all have a, a, a kind of power and they're real alphas. And, and it's really interesting to be around them. You've done so many great documentaries but we know that they documentaries are time intensive. They take a lot of sweat equity. How many at once can you work on? And do you ever feel like one documentary has suffered because you were spread too thin? Oh, uh, it's a good question. The nature of documentaries being so labor intensive and the profit margin being so small, typically with labor intensive projects and small profit margins it's a conundrum because you've got to figure out how to make it all work and you can't really turn away work when you have it so if you're doing two at once does one suffer uh, hopefully not i did off the res and the best it never was simultaneously essentially 
I did through the fire while we were making street ball every every year. So you have to be able to to do more than one at a time in order to sustain a business. But you have to really trust your editors because you can't be in the cutting room when you're out shooting and you can't be in two cutting rooms at once. And and you have to really, really trust your editor. So if you're going to be doing more than one at a time, you have to, I mean, you always need a great editor and documentaries. They're the most important person, but you really have to have one you can trust to understand what you're trying to accomplish and, and make decisions and value judgments on their own. Otherwise, I, I, I think they do suffer. Um, if, if your editors aren't strong, they're going to have to suffer. But if your editors are strong, you, you can pull it off. Your filmography is flat out prolific. You've done the most 30 for 30s out of anyone. When filmmakers and production people like myself look at you, it's like you're a god, you know, you're a hero. But you are you are human as well. Have you had a low point in your career and how have you bounced back from that? Once I did Through the Fire and then and then I made a film called The Streak, which was before 30 for 30, but when ESPN was was a follow doc, which they stopped doing. After Through the Fire, I didn't see how I could possibly do it again, how I could possibly find a subject that resonated in such a way and have a story unfold in such a perfect way. And how could I work that hard again? Um, You know, uh, there was a lot of magic that went into that. And this was before 30 for 30 was a thing. And it wasn't so easy to find a home for a sports documentary. So I didn't know that I I would be able to do it again. And, And when I was making the streak, which is a high school wrestling film, I, was sure it was going to be the end of my career that this was never going to live up to through the fire and but people liked it you know well certainly wasn't like a hit like through the fire was but it it the people at espn loved it and then right right after that was when they decided to do 30 for 30 and they asked me to be part of it based on what john skipper had thought of the streak the high school wrestling film so you know i think the timing for me in my career of 30 for 30 was great and then the fact that there's an incredibly supportive group to work with and for at ESPN Films, and they still are to this day. And and when you can get in a comfort zone with a with a client with that much reach, and you know that these these films that are films you want to make and they're going to be seen and paid for, that was really really lucky for me. But I I, I did not think such a thing would be possible or would happen. And uh, I was, uh, uh, I was glad it did. We're going to slide into the third act here, and we call it quick hitters. It's more like ask you anything. And I'm going to ask you right off the top, how do you apply what Steve Sable told you about having the love and you're doing so many different sports and so many different things? Like, how do you apply that to all your documentaries? Well, because it's about the people. It's not about, about the sport or the context. You don't have to love the sport, but you do have to love the people. You do have to find the thing in them that you want to keep being with them. And if you don't find it, your audience isn't going to find it either. So if, if I don't find that thing about Marcus Dupree that wants me to go back down to Philadelphia, Mississippi, and spend some more time with him, then the audience isn't going to be wanting to spend more time with him either. So 
so yeah, it's not about the the game or the sport or the context. It's it's about the person. One story you're still looking to tell. Oh boy. Um, well, the story I'd really like to tell is this the book Jake. I had done a short for Grantland about the author Alfred Sloat, who was a boyhood hero of mine. This was the first real book I'd ever read. I was like eight years old. It was a story about a little league baseball player. And it had been a dream of mine to turn it into a feature film. And I still harbor that dream. Not sure how we're going to make it happen. But um, yeah, so we did this little short Jake, which I don't think you can see anymore because it's not online. Grantland, everything from Grantland was taken down. And I'm not sure who if they know who owns it. But it was just a little like six minute story about this 86 year old author who had written this amazing book 35 years and it was Bill Simmons' favorite book as a kid, too. That's why we did the piece. And I would love to make that happen. Jake, that's the, the, the final frontier for me. Worst or most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you on set? Oh, man, so many embarrassing things. <laughs> get embarrassed all the time. I was interviewing Whitey Herzog, the old manager for Fastball. I wanted him to talk about Bob Feller because he was one of the few people who had actually faced Bob Feller. And... He starts talking about something else and ask him again again Bob Feller, talk about something else, ask him again about Bob Feller. And he just starts cursing at me and says, Why do you want to talk about Bob Feller? Sing like a Bob Feller. And he rips off the mic and gets up and walks away. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. We were filming outside at the Otisago Hotel in Cooperstown, which is where all the Hall of Famers stay for Hall of Fame week. That was the week we were going to be interviewing all the Hall of Famers. And they're all up on the veranda there in this beautiful setting. And there are all these Hall of Famers, right? There are like 20 of them. And they see Whitey get up and walk away. And they're all cracking up and laughing at me. Uh, like, oh, my God. I'm an embarrassment in front of all of my heroes. This is horrible. But we survive. You got to have a little bit of thick skin. <laughs> yeah. Especially in that setting. At yeah. the Hall of Fame. I mean, you're going to, you're going to embarrass yourself all the time. You're going to embarrass yourself all the time making these films and you just, it's not about you. So don't worry about it. Last one for me, Jonathan, who would you like to hear on this podcast? Who would I like to hear on this podcast? Well, I like listening to you guys. You're, you <laughs> should know what you're talking about. So it's, uh, it could be anybody. Um, but I guess who would I like to hear on this podcast? You know, what I'd like to hear this is a terrible answer. I'd like to hear Steve Sable. That's what I'd like to hear. You guys talking to him that I would tune in for, man. No doubt. Last one for me. Favorite sports documentary. Got to be one of the Ali documentaries because it was certainly my favorite 30 for 30 was Muhammad and Larry mm -hmm. that the Maisel's brothers did that, that Brad Kaplan Put together years later i thought the empathy that they showed for the sort of champ as he was beginning to fade and the empathy they had at the same time for this great champion larry holmes who was getting no respect to this day it was beautiful i love that i think we may need to bring them on oh yeah jonathan it's been an honor we really appreciate your time and just an awesome conversation. Oh, thanks so much. I really, really enjoyed it. I appreciate the invitation. I really do. A special thank you to the living legend, Jonathan Hawk. We're ready for a part two. 
Please subscribe, rate, and review the show, and if you do, we'll give you a big shout-out. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Beyond the Lens, and that's a wrap.